They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the communal life, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Our first reading from Acts chapter 2 opens with an accurate description of the life of the Christian community in the first generation down to today. What do the disciples of Jesus do? Well, first of all, they don't teach their own opinions, but handed on what was handed to them, the deposit of faith, the doctrine of Jesus given to the apostles and lived in communion with them. Everyone just doesn't do their own thing according to their own interpretation of that teaching. And it is not just any kind of community, but a union of prayer. And then not just any kind of prayer. The breaking of the bread and the prayers. You know, this is not just kind of praise and worship services or private devotions or even adoration of the Most Blessed Sacrament that the book of Acts is talking about the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and the liturgy of the hours, which have been with us from the beginning. The first name used for the Eucharistic celebration during the Sunday Assembly of Christians was the Fratio Panis, the breaking of the bread. And this was no accident. The Lord had commanded the apostles and thereby their successors to do in memory of Him what He did at the Last Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. At Emmaus, the risen Lord wasn't even recognized until He broke the bread, even though He was standing right in front of the two disciples in Luke 24 on that first Easter Sunday. And it was not until he broke bread among them that the scales of spiritual blindness fell off, and they saw him for who he is. All of that to say that the Eucharist makes the church, and the church makes the Eucharist. You can't have one without the other. And every time disciples begin to twist the teaching of Christ to suit their own agenda, at a certain point they stop coming to celebrate with other Christians in union with the successors to the apostles. The Greek word used for this is schisma, which means cleft or division. And while it may take a long time for the church to formally recognize a group or individual or movement as schismatic, whenever our hearts turn away from the same church, which is a visible one with real bonds of communion and real expectations of obedience, this seed of sin fed by pride grows quickly indeed. Now, the way that the Fraxio Panis has been celebrated has varied over the centuries. 
We actually know very little about the details from the first generations of Christians, but the forms in which the sacrifice of redemption have been celebrated have always been lived within the communion of the church and subject to the authority of the church. Today, there are 23 different rites in the church and various forms and usages of all of them. The vast majority of Catholic Christians, probably well over 95 percent, worship according to liturgical text authorized by the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, according to what we call the Roman rite. Unfortunately, the past 60 years have been marked by internecine warfare among Catholic Christians over the forms of our Roman liturgy. And that same fight has echoes in other rites as well. Now, you know, it is perfectly normal for people to develop preferences for what they're used to. And having the way they pray in public change is extremely difficult. In 1663, the Russian Orthodox Patriarch tried to bring conformity between Greek and Russian usages in his church by ordering people to use three fingers instead of two to make the sign of the cross. And the schism that came from that is still with us. Closer to our own time, many Catholics were profoundly disturbed by the changes in the Roman liturgy in the middle of the 20th century, which gave rise to a movement in which some Catholics have preserved communion with the Roman pontiff, and others have broken full, visible communion with the Pope, both groups trying to maintain those liturgical traditions. Now, the specifics of the liturgy belong to discipline, not dogma, and as such, they are subject to the authority of the church. They require assent and obedience of the faithful, but precisely because they are discipline and not dogma, Catholics can question the prudence of decisions made in this regard without thereby becoming bad Catholics. One of the reasons for today's liturgy wars is precisely that many Catholics insist on either exaggerating or minimizing obedience and authority on one hand, and also accusing other Catholics of disloyalty when they have the freedom to make respectful criticisms on prudential disciplinary decisions in this regard. Now, of course, opposing sides in these liturgy wars want to create narratives to bolster their arguments. In the age of the Internet, those narratives have acquired ease of transmission and propagandistic power. But, you know, to be a Catholic, you shouldn't have to be a liturgical scholar or a theologian just to go to Mass. And what is interesting is that many of the narratives floating around out there have been crafted and promoted by people who aren't liturgical scholars or theologians either. And when they make plausible arguments, people buy into the whole package 
without realizing that there is often more to the story. Now, you know, ordinarily, this wouldn't be much of a problem. But in an era of cancel culture and endemic rage, people are being rabble-roused to break communion with the church based on narratives which have grains of truth, but not the fullness of truth. As a pastor, my chief concern is the salvation of souls. It is the master stroke of the devil himself to take the fraxiopanis, the food of unity, and turn it into the source of division amongst Christians. And it is my duty as a pastor of souls to call your attention to anything that can be a spiritual danger. Pride and schism are much worse than liking or not liking a particular ceremony or prayer at Mass. Now, what is interesting about the opposing sides of these liturgy wars in the church today is that they often base their narratives on supposed research that at the time seemed to be settled science, but have not been revisited since by many people. You know, if you ask many priests over a certain age, I won't tell you what that age is, but if in the ancient church the Mass was celebrated facing the people in the vernacular with communion in the hand, and if the second Eucharistic prayer was written by Hippolytus, if you ask a priest over a certain age all of those questions, almost all of them will say yes. Why? because that's what they were taught at the time, and many of them have not read a book of liturgical scholarship since they were in the seminary. Today we know that all of those things that I just mentioned are a lot more complicated. Likewise, many traditionally-minded Catholics, even outside of visible communion with the church, have raised the Missal according to its 1962 edition as the gold standard of liturgy. And some refuse to go to a Mass celebrated according to books written after that time without realizing that much of what is in that 1962 Missal, such as all of the celebrations of Holy Week, are all part of that same mentality with the same people behind it as the rites they criticize. Why? because many have uncritically accepted an entire narrative that has itself been superseded by newer scholarship. Like most things, the historical and theological aspects of all of this are much more complex than most people realize. Much of the debate has centered around what is the better or true mass with the charge that the other, whatever the other is to them, is defective, inefficacious, or false. And often this is pushed by making simplistic comparisons between one set of text and rubrics and another. Okay, now don't get me wrong. If you do a one-to-one comparison of certain things, okay, some very interesting things emerge. And I think all of that is worthy of exploration. 
But when you start comparing within a larger field of text and ceremonies, a different picture emerges. For example, many Eastern Orthodox and Byzantine Christians criticize our first Eucharistic prayer for not paying enough attention to the Holy Spirit. And if you just compare and contrast, it certainly seems like the Byzantines are right. But the reason why this is the case is important. Our first Eucharistic prayer predates the controversies over whether the Holy Spirit was God or not. And in the city of Rome, there weren't loads of people running around saying that the Holy Spirit wasn't divine. But that was the case in Byzantium. And so they incorporated into the liturgy more references to the Holy Spirit to undergird the true teaching because it was needed then and there. But if you make a conclusion from that, that our Roman liturgy is defective, you're missing the point. It's just more ancient and wasn't as necessary to address a problem that didn't exist. In the traditional Roman rite, there was only one Eucharistic prayer and ten prefaces to that prayer. Many people criticize the modern Roman rite for having a whole bunch of prefaces and Eucharistic prayers. But the critics forget that many prefaces were already gotten rid of already in the 16th century, and nobody left the church over it. And the Syriac tradition has hundreds of Eucharistic prayers. They're all different and emphasize different aspects of the same Eucharistic mystery. And that is precisely the point. The fractio panis, the breaking of the bread, has seen a remarkable variety of forms and reforms over the ages. Alexander Pope in 1709 wrote, a little learning is a dangerous thing. To leave the Catholic Church in order to preserve the Catholic faith is to prove this aphorism right. It's not inconsequential. It is a danger to the unity of the church and the eternal salvation of individuals to those who know less than they think they know and then make decisions that bear on the eternity of their soul based on that knowledge. Easter and all of this beautiful Paschal Tide season is one continuous feast of divine mercy. Don't miss the forest for the trees. What we celebrate in the breaking of the bread is the triumph of life over death, of true knowledge over sophistry, of light over darkness. The sacramental economy of the church is a means to that end whose object is God himself. By all means, continue to study the history and theology of those precious rites which get us there. Observe, comment, suggest. But then we put all of that aside to kneel down and worship God, who is the who behind the what that we celebrate.